Gospels or just turn over in your bulletins there. We'll be, uh, after a month's hiatus for Easter and other things, we'll be continuing our series in the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, uh, looking at verses 1 through 4 together uh, this morning. And boys and girls, make sure you have your kids' bulletin. You can't miss it. It's hot pink this morning. So you have your own translation of the sermon text in there and your place to ask questions. And again, please, if you ask questions on here, that's great. We encourage that. Please put your name on this, though, so I know who to answer. It, it, that solves a lot of uh, frustration for both of us, if you will do that, please. And before we go to God's Word, let's go together to our Lord in prayer. No, Father God, we do come thanking you that you have not left us alone, but that you have revealed yourself to us in your Word, that you condescended in speech that we might know you, So we pray, Lord, now that as we come before your word, that you would open this text up to us and open us up to it. Allow your text, Lord, to confront us, to cut us, and then to heal us through Christ. I pray you would show us the gospel yet again this day. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, why are there so many denominations? I mean, Jesus prayed for unity his last night on earth. Why hasn't that happened? Anybody ever heard that question or something similar to that? Yeah, it's a common, if simplistic question, but it's a common, but it does get to a legitimate problem is Christians, even in the same church, sometimes have problems getting along with each other. Now, I know it's an other church problem. It's hypothetical here, but let's, let's try to work together and see if we can figure it out anyway. It's happened all through church history. And it was happening in Philippi. Now, it's been a while, so let me remind you of where we've been. Paul has pointed out the unique relationship uh, he has with this Philippian church, the, the partnership, the word for fellowship that they share and how much he wants to come and see them, and he's asked them to pray for his release from prison that he may go and see them. And then he teaches them how to live together in unity. And he just taught them that, how to live in unity against forces from outside the church seeking to hurt the church. And he said the key to that kind of unity is standing firm in the faith together. Not being afraid and still loving your neighbor even though they are sometimes in opposition to you. That's for those outside the church. And he, we left off chapter 1 with him saying those kind of struggles against outside forces are actually gifts God brings to his people to help mature them and grow them up. But now, starting in chapter 2, <clears throat> he will address struggles against forces inside the church that are disrupting unity and bringing uh, discord, disrupting the life of the church. So if you would, let's look together at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also the interests of others. Uh, This is God's Word. May He open this text up to us today. I want to give you the theme for today. You can remember this. It's it's, uh, printed out for you on your outline part. Kids, you might want to write this down so you can remember. This is a good thing to think about the sermon as you're going over God's Word on your Sabbath rest. And this this is what we're going to talk about today. When the gospel thrives in believers, humility and unity flourish in the church. Say that for you again. When the gospel thrives in believers, humility and unity flourish in the church. And that's important because the gospel unites us, as we're going to see. There should be unity among us and humility in us. And so let's see how that works out. Let's see how the gospel unites us. Paul starts out this passage. Indeed, he starts out as Christianity itself starts out with the truth before the rules. He reminds them of the grace in which they stand before he shows them what that grace then demands of them. The privilege of grace always, always comes before the obedience of faith. That's the main difference in Christianity and the man-made religions out there. The man-made religions out there say usually something along the lines of this. Here is what it takes to please God. And you do these things and then God will love you. But Christianity comes along and says, God demands these things. You have utterly failed to do these things. And so Jesus Christ has come and done these things for you. And then he's forgiven you for failing. And when you place your faith and trust in him, God looks at you and says, oh, you've done these things. He gives you his love before you've actually earned it because Christ earned it for you. That's where Paul begins with the grace in which they stand before he puts a bunch of rules on them. In other words, Paul tells them the gospel. He starts out right away and says, look, if you have any encouragement, we could actually translate this word refreshment. If you have any refreshment in Christ, you should know this. Isn't that a great way to think about that? I mean, life is hard. It is a daily battle out there in the world of commerce and the world of relationships. And people are starving for hope. And Christians have this wonderful gift. Christ refreshes us. What a great way to think about that. Having a relationship with Christ anchors us. It steadies us. It renews us in a difficult world. He then reminds them that they have comfort in love, he says. Christians get to experience God's love personally. We actually get to know God's love, and we get to be part of a loving community that knows God's love. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we have the greeting time. We don't just do that, well, how can we transition now? We have the greeting time because we're supposed to rejoice in the fellowship we have, the love we have for each other. It's one of my favorite times of the service because I watch everybody get up, and everybody gets excited and starts talking, and everybody hugs. It's a beautiful time because we have this comfort in love. It just feels good to remember that about each other. And then he reminds them of their participation in the Spirit. This is the idea of being in fellowship or being a partner with the Spirit. You're a business partner with the Holy Spirit, he says. This idea of partnership, it's one of the big themes of the letter. He says, you are family with the Holy Spirit and therefore family with each other. So he's trying to help make the case for unity. It's very important that we recognize that it is the Holy Spirit who brings unity. It is the Holy Spirit who comes and as a blessing to us, puts us in unity with other believers. And we need to remember that because if we're grieving the Holy Spirit 
in our personal lives, if those besetting sins that we just have stopped fighting or maybe never started fighting because when you get right down to it, we kind of like this one, if we just won't let go of that anger and bitterness we have for this person or whatever it is the Holy Spirit's convicting you of right now as I'm talking, if we won't let go of that, the Bible is very clear. We are grieving the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then is not going to move in us. And so if you are as an individual grieving the Holy Spirit, you are actually hindering the formation of unity in the entire church. That's kind of heavy. I know, I'm sorry, but that's what it says. We have to make sure that, wow, my, my individual behavior, my personal ongoing sanctification in the Spirit actually affects how well the church gets along with itself. See, none of us are completely independent. None of us is actually an island. We are part of the body of Christ. We are in fellowship with the Spirit and with each other. And that's why he ends verse 1 by saying, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, because of grace we care about each other. These are words that we don't really use in English. These are actually words, that the, the best words he can think of in Greek to talk about really an explosive emotional outburst. You know, the things that make us uncomfortable when other people do them. That's what he's talking about. Here's how we can think about it for us. Does your heart just leap for joy at the thought that there's going to come a day, I'm telling you right now, it's going to come a day, when we are all going to gather, let me get orientated, at the big parking lot down there. As a whole church, we're going to gather around the whole church. Lyle's going to get the tractor. He's going to pull it up. We're going to get that bush hog going, and we are going to grab Grace Myers Walker, and we're going to throw it under that bush hog, and Lyle's going to, we're just going to watch him shatter that thing because she doesn't need it, and she's going to walk right into this church building. And we're just going to rejoice. Does your heart rejoice the thought that that is coming one day? Does your heart long for Peggy Taylor to be healed of cancer? Does your heart ache when you think of the Hawley family? That's affection. That's sympathy. That's the unity we have in the Holy Spirit. And that's all because the gospel of Jesus Christ binds us together. We're not a bunch of Christians who happen to attend the same church. We are the church united as the body of Christ. Those are are some big concepts, I know. So boys and girls, I want you to get this too. I don't want you to miss this. Boys and girls, look at your translation. Here's here's what Pastor Sean's trying to say. Look at me, your, your verse one. Since you have help from Christ, since you can feel his love in your church, and since the Holy Spirit has made you into a big family that really cares about each other, See, all those things, God has done all these things. Because he's done all these things, there's something that follows. And what is it that follows? Well, there should be unity among us because there's grace and gospel in us. Paul says, all that grace, all those gifts of love and community, what's to be done with those things? Well, look with me at verse 2. What's he say? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That kind of sounds selfish and maybe repetitive at first. I mean, it sounds selfish because Paul seems to be applying to himself, right? Make me happy. But that's not what he's saying. Instead, he's appealing to their love for him. Um, 
a, a church I used to serve at, we were in a seminary town, and we had a lot of seminary students. They were interns, so I had, at any given time, I would have six or seven interns that I would try to help, you know, mentor, try to, the, the stuff they don't teach you in seminary, you kind of have to learn on the job, kind of help them understand those things. And it would often come up that there are things that you are free to do, absolutely. There is no law. No one's going to say, oh, you can't do that as a pastor. But if you choose to do this behavior, you're going to end up offending people and perhaps closing their ears. And so as part of your job may be, you might need to back off that. And of course, like, well, but I have freedom. Yes, you have freedom. I'm not telling you don't. You're not sinning. I'm just saying it might be wise if you, that wouldn't work. So finally, after debating, arguing, most of the time I would end up saying, look, they're not going to complain to you. They're going to complain to me. So it would make my life easier if you would just do this. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, if you love me, this is going to help me out too. He's already joyful. He's not saying make me happy. He's saying you can make me even more joyful if you would be of the same mind, if you would have the same love, if you would be in full accord and of one mind. See, the gospel should make us into a community that has one mind together. We could translate it almost, you know, y'all need to agree together, believe the same things, you need to cherish the same things. But what does that look like? Well, it says we will all have the same love. We will all have goodwill towards each other. The body of Christ living in unity loves the same things and we love each other. Loving unity is what makes the church unique. So it's not that we're a social club for like-minded people. It's not that we're a lobbying group with similar goals. But we love each other. And that's the point. We're supposed to actually love each other. Not like each other. We're actually supposed to love each other. I want you to look with me. It'll be up on the screen. You can turn there yourself at John chapter 13, uh, verse 35. I want you to see what Jesus says about this love we're supposed to have together. John 13, 35 says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Look, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples. Okay, what's this? If you have love for one another. I wonder if we really get that. The unique thing the church has to show a curious world is not our worship style. It's not what we're against. It's not where we stand on moral issues. The unique thing we have is we show the truth of Christianity by our love for each other. You ever thought about it that way? What would that mean if we recognized it's not how good I present the gospel, it's how well I love other church members that God uses to spread the gospel? Hmm. But there's even more. Paul says we're also supposed to be in full accord. We're supposed to agree together. We're supposed to be on the same team. We're supposed to get along with each other. In Roman culture, this idea that Paul grabs here is, is the idea of a one-soul relationship. It's a deep, strong friendship working together. You see, in the church, when Christians are thinking more of their personal goals and their personal agendas, what happens is we got a bunch of people pulling in different directions. The church splits into factions. It splits into interest groups. It, it, it divides. It's only by being in agreement by being on the same team, by being in one accord, by getting along with each other, that we overcome that tendency 
to divide. Instead, we come back together and we pull in the same direction, so to speak. And finally, he says in this verse, we should be of one mind. I love this one. I want you to think of old friends. People you know who have just been friends since, since forever. Maybe it's an old married couple. You know, the kind, not who just put up with each other, but that old couple that really enjoys each other. You know, that one, that one that you're looking at, oh man, that's going to be rough when that first funeral happens. They just, they, their hearts have been knitted together so much. They have such a deep and abiding friendship and relationship. They understand each other so deeply. They care about each other so much that we, what do we do? We call them soulmates. And that's what Paul says here that we're supposed to be soulmates with our fellow Christians. That much unity, that much loving each other because we're soulmates in Christ. Now, there's one thing I have to clarify at this point because we're Americans and we're always like, yeah, but, but, but. Okay, unity does not mean uniformity, Okay. Paul does not envision that the church is a group of robots and everybody wears the same kind of clothes and everybody locks in lockstep doing exactly the same thing and there's no creativity, there's no individualism. That's not what he's saying. He sees a group of individuals who, in spite of their differences, come together in unity and love each other because of the gospel. And that's really hard to do, which is why it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit Unity in the midst of a diversity of people like us is proof of the truth of the gospel because it's a supernatural work. And that's not me saying it. That's Scripture itself. Again, we're going to go back to John's gospel and hear the words of Jesus himself on this exact same point. John 17, 21 says this. Jesus says, he's praying and he says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And this is, this is jo- Jesus' high priestly prayer. He mainly prays for unity in the church. And here in this one verse, he's saying, look, just like you and I exist together in unity, and yet we're individual persons in the Trinity, and I want them to be that close as well. And what's the reason he gives? That the world may believe you have sent me. The unity in the church is how the world believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In case you miss it, a couple verses later, verse 23 of John chapter 17. Again, what does Jesus say? Jesus is still praying. He says, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Missions and evangelism are worthless if we don't have unity. Unity is how the church shows the world that Jesus was sent from God. Jesus himself said it twice right there in his prayer. You ever thought about unity that way? You ever thought about us actually loving each other is the key way the world knows that God sent Jesus? If that's true, if Jesus was telling the truth here, if we are part of a church that hasn't seen the fruit of missions or evangelism in a long time, this text forces us to ask, doesn't it? Are we displaying unity to a watching world? Or are we known for something else? 
Because unity is how the world knows that God sent Jesus. Not our words, our unity. Boys and girls, I don't want you to miss this. Look with me at your verse too. Here's what Paul is saying very simply. Paul says, I would overflow with joy to see y'all living as a team, loving the same things, believing the same things, and getting along with each other. See, it's that simple, boys and girls. Because of the gospel, we're supposed to just get along with each other. We're supposed to love each other. And when we do that, the world knows that Jesus is real. Because when the gospel thrives in believers, humility and unity flourish in the church. So the gospel unites us. It creates unity among us, but it also creates humility in us. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, first thing Paul says is, look, no selfish ambition, no rivalry in the church. Paul grabs a concept out of their culture that actually exists in our culture too. And it's why many of us don't like politicians is what Paul says here. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. When I was in college, I, I, this man in my church uh, was running for the Congress seat uh, there in Waco. And I was, he, he was a great guy. He would have been awesome as a congressman. So I was part of his campaign, and he was doing really well. The, the Republican incumbent was retiring, so his seat was wide open. He won the primaries, hands down. So in the, the general election, he's going up against uh, a Democrat who had a lot more money. And the last three weeks, some poll numbers came out, and my friend was just skyrocketing. It was a shoe-in, done deal. We were so excited, so happy. All of a sudden, these nasty attack ads started showing up on TV. Absolutely untrue. Just, they're not, they weren't even lies. They were fiction. They were beyond lies. He just made stuff up. And he didn't have the money or the resources to answer them. And the masses, unfortunately, well, the TV said, so they just went with, went with it. And he lost hugely after these huge polls. And I remember I was so disgusted by this whole thing. And that's actually the word Paul uses here. The word for selfish ambition is actually a Greek word. Because remember, they invented democracy when someone would just selfishly, with no concern for the greater good, just make stuff up and electioneer and manipulate and by fraud to win an election. You know ancient Greek had a word for that? That's this word. It's the same reason you hate politicians too, because, right, the, because the skills needed to win an election are usually are not the same skills to govern, right? And it's the people who know this and not this. Anyway, I don't want to go off that, call, I don't want to go on that track. But you see what I'm saying here? Paul says that selfishness, that I am willing to sacrifice anything to win, that can never be in the church. We can't have that in the church or there is absolutely no unity. And what's really scary is if Paul says that there must have been some of that paul says let's have none of that no positioning no manipulating no whispers no conniving behind the scenes no secrecy all of that goes out in favor of the unity of the spirit open communication no, well, I don't like the way this happens. I'm going to talk to this person and then this person. This person. Well, why don't you talk to the person? No, no, I can't talk to the person who did it. That'd be weird. If we could sum it up, Paul would be sitting here saying, man, people, you never talk about. You talk to when there's a problem. You don't have any of that selfish junk happening. And then it gets even harder. Paul doesn't let up. He says there should be no conceit in the church. There should be no 
selfishness, nothing from rivalry and nothing from conceit. This is the old King James word, vainglory. We could literally translate this word today. You ready for this one? Self-esteem. No self-esteem. Here's what Paul's saying. When we base our self-esteem, when we base our significance on what we do for the church or what we've accomplished for the church, instead of basing our esteem and our significance on what Christ has done, there will be factions among us. Because if your esteem comes from this thing, whatever this thing is, short-term missions, fellowship committee, choir, Sunday school, worship team, whatever it is, if your self-esteem comes from this thing, your ministry, you're gifted, you're good at it, you glorify God, you're not sinning, but all of a sudden you start to get your sense of worth from this and not Christ, you will become personally offended, actually feel assaulted if someone doesn't care about this thing as much as you care about this thing. And when that happens, there's a division. Our, our conceit, our significance, our glory is so wrapped up in this thing that once someone doesn't care enough about it, what we hear is not, well, I don't really care about that ministry. What we hear is, I don't care about you. Because we're so wrapped up in this thing and that causes divisions. Instead, Paul says, don't do that. Cast that aside. Instead, oh, I don't know, maybe how about in humility you count others as more significant than yourself? See, humility is one of those churchy words we use so often that we don't really understand what it means. The Philippians were a Gentile-based church. They were learning the Judeo-Christian mindset. They didn't have an Old Testament background. They weren't Jewish, so it was all new to them. And I'm telling you that because the idea of humility to the Greek and Roman culture was held in contempt. They hated the very idea of humility. It was not seen as a virtue. Humility meant weakness. Humility meant lack of freedom. Humility meant subjection. Humility meant slavery. They despise the idea of humility. But then Christianity comes along and says, no, that's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. right? It's thinking of others more. It's sacrificing for others. It's serving others. That's humility. And Paul says, in that spirit, consider other people better than you. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to come and say, my significance is in Christ, and so I will think you're significant. Okay, I'm using big words like significance. So boys and girls, would you look with me at your verse 3? I'll make sure you don't miss this. Here's what Paul is saying in, ver- in verse 3. He says, that means have no bullies, nor selfish people trying to make their own team. Also, don't make a big deal about yourself. But instead, make a big deal of your teammates. See, that's what Paul is saying. You want to have unity in the church? You want to be a team together? Tell your teammates good job instead of trying to get people to tell you good job. Look out for the needs of others instead of trying to make yourself happy. How can I help them? And that's how unity comes about. See, the humble person seeks to celebrate others instead of looking to have themselves celebrated. The humble person does what verse 4 says, that let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. It doesn't say to disregard your own interests. It says be mindful of the interests of others as well. 
I remember I was in this cafeteria one time. I think it was in college. I'm trying to remember. And wherever this cafeteria was, all of a sudden they had some really good chicken wings. And they kept running out. And this line that was separate from the main line kept forming right in front of the chicken wing counter. And so we were sitting there waiting. And I was on like my, I don't know, eighth or ninth platter probably. You know, and I was sitting there waiting for this chicken wings. And we're in line. There's like six people behind me. And all of a sudden this guy just comes kind of up and up, looks right past us and goes right to the chicken counter line. And, hey, can I get some more than chicken wings? And we were all like, you know, grumble, grumble, grumble. No one wanted to say anything. This girl behind me all of a sudden popped up. She goes, oh, hello. Other people exist, okay? That's exact quote. And I was like, that's a great way to put it. Other people exist, okay? And that's what Paul is saying here. If you want unity in the church, you kind of have to look up off your own stuff and go, whoa, whoa, there are other people around me. I wonder how I can help them. That's what humility does. It looks up and says, oh, there are other people here. I wonder how I can help them. Humility is the idea of having a thought for others. Just as an aside, the month of May is officer nomination time. It's our new officer nomination time. We moved it from uh, September or August to now, so we can have more time for training. You need to nominate men who have a thought for others. You will be blessed by having humility in your officers. Because you really want that kind of humility in your church body. Because that's what leads to unity. So if you think of a humble man, oh wow, a man who's always putting the needs of others first, who rarely, you know he thinks about himself, but he always seems to put other people's needs first, you need to nominate that man. That's the kind of elder and officer and deacon we need. Let me give you an example of this. We just had a really good one. It's nice to have our family back together, a little sparse last week, because a large chunk of you went off to our wonderful beach retreat that they have every year. It's a great time of fellowship. It's a great time of bonding. And those of you who went, don't you wish that in the other parts of the year, the normal parts of the year, that it could be like that, that kind of closeness you had over that weekend, the kind of fellowship you had? What you desire is based on humility. It's close relationships of putting other people's needs first. And for those of you who went and enjoy it, you you may not know this, or maybe you do. Do you have any idea how hard the fellowship committee works? How long in advance they work to put that thing together? It is unreal. But they do it out of humility, out of love, serving the needs of others to build up the church. He's not here, so I can talk about him. How about John Mark having to work two jobs during the week, three at the Y during the week, and then, you know, we love y'all, but... You know, at the beach retreat, he's on the clock. And so he's got to still be on and, and do the music and stuff. And because he's on the clock, Shay's kind of watching the kids by herself because her husband's at work. And then, and then Phil had to prepare four talks in addition to his normal pastoral duties. You know how hard that is? But that's what hum- humble people do because they look out for the needs of others so there can be unity. The church can be built up. That's what it looks like when the fellowship committee does that. When the choir spends hours rehearsing songs, that's humility. When the worship team spends hours preparing every week, that's humility. When the missions committee makes these difficult decisions as funding goes up and down, how do we help our missionaries? How do we pray for them? How do we support them? That's humility. That's what it means to work together is to look for the needs of others first. And so if you're missing out on that, if you want that kind of camaraderie and fellowship, instead of waiting for it to happen, Instead of waiting for someone else to come bring it to you, in humility, go figure out how you can bring that to somebody else and you'll end up getting that kind of fellowship and community. In humility, look out for the interests of others. 
See how you can initiate a relationship and build that with other people. So to wrap this up, Paul brings it full circle. He ends with the truth of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. If you get to this point in this text, if you're paying attention, you, you have to ask this question. How can our selfish hearts get off of themselves and love others selflessly like this? Because it's not a matter of discipline. It's not a matter of suppressing our natural urges. It's not a matter of trying to be better people or working harder. That just makes us less loving and more irritable when we do that. So what do we do? The only remedy, the only way to do this is for our hearts to be fascinated with wonder at Christ. To be overwhelmed at the love of of God through Jesus Christ. To be overwhelmed at what we have received from our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in humility let Himself be crucified for our sins. Who was the epitome, the manifestation of putting the needs of others first. So much so that He laid down His life for His friends. See, Paul says the reason we should consider other members of the church to be more significant than we are is because Christ considered us more significant than his life. Here's how that fleshes out in real life, that that theological truth. Here's how it looks in real life. When we don't get the gospel, our view of ourself swings wildly between these two poles. We, when we're performing up to our standards, when we're living what we think is a good life, when we're being a good person or when we're being a good Christian, whatever that means, we think we're good at our jobs or we're living right or we're being a good parent. Or when we're in that situation where we believe we're doing good, we feel very confident. And we're usually not very humble. And we usually don't have a lot of sympathy for those who we see aren't doing life as well as we're doing life. And it makes it hard for us to actually love them and look out for them because we're thinking, well, I'm doing okay. Why can't you be doing okay? We're confident, but we're not humble. But then when we blow it, we come over here. I haven't been a good parent. I'm not a good employee. I'm a terrible Christian. Whatever it is, we're very humble, but we're not very confident. And so we don't have the gumption to go and help other people either because we're too busy focused on ourselves because we don't get the gospel. We're swinging between these two poles. But see, the gospel comes, and the gospel gives us this unique identity in Christ. Because Christ comes, and he accepts and covers our flaws, and then roots us in his love and gives us confidence. The gospel is that I am so flawed, I am so messed up, I am so sinful and evil, that Jesus Christ had to die to fix me. If that won't humble you, nothing will. But the gospel is also that we are loved and cherished so much that Jesus was glad to die for us. If that won't lift you up and give you confidence, nothing will. And so you hold those intention of, I was so bad that this is what it took, but he loved me so much that this is what he freely gave. And it gives you this unique ability to say, I'm humble and I'm confident, and so I can love you because I don't need you to validate me. Christ does. How can I help you? That's what Paul is getting at here. So to Christians, those of you who know Christ, those of you who have confessed faith in Christ, let's be candid about our lack of fruitfulness in evangelism. Let's just own that together. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you think I'm being a little harsh, just ask yourself when the last time this church did an adult adult baptism. 
Because that's the fruit of evangelism, is adult baptisms. Is it because we're not in unity, and therefore the world does not know from us that God sent Christ? Is it because we're not humble? Let the reality of the gospel, the humility of Christ on the cross for sinners like us, let that reality change us so that we are different from the world. We are never more like Christ than we, when we display his humility to a watching world. Because when we are in unity, Jesus Christ himself said, that is how the world knows God sent me. And to non-Christians, if you're here and you're like, I don't know about this, I'm still sort of investigating, my friend may become, I'm here because it's Mother's Day, can you finish? Is there a part of your heart that wishes you were a little less selfish? Just a part. Is there a part of your heart that really wants to help others, but it seems that your own selfishness or maybe that of others always gets in the way? Before you can go and change the problems out there, I'm just going to tell you, you need to change the problems in here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can fix you, can fix your internal problem. Rooting yourself in what Christ has done for you. Anchoring your soul in the humility of Jesus Christ for a sinner makes you free to love and serve others. So even now, if you want that, you may not understand everything about it. That's fine. Simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Forget everything you think you know about Christianity. Forget the church you grew up with. Forget what you hear about on TV. And just recognize that Christianity is simply placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then through him, you can be that selfless person you want to be. Because the gospel will change you. Because when the gospel thrives in believers... Humility and unity flourish in the church. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we do come and we do confess that this text is hard. This is one of those texts that I just want to move on from and not think about again because, Lord, it's hard. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, make us one? even as you yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one. And through that unity would the world know from us that you did send your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law, that in him we might have life abundantly because we've been forgiven of our sins by his death and we've been raised to new life in Christ through his resurrection, given the Holy Spirit, counted as holy and called your children. Lord, would you help us to remember that reality of the gospel and to live in it? And Lord, I pray that for those who are here today who don't know you, I pray that as you have promised, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for righteousness, I pray that you would do your work of drawing all people to him. Would you do your work of salvation this day? We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.